Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, December 17th, and we're discussing direct consumer sales. I'm your host, Nick Seifel. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst, Abby Mallon. Abby, what's up? Uh, not much. How are you? I'm doing great. I think you've said this is your first time back on Industry Focus. You know, yep. I guess since maybe you were an intern, how does it feel to be back? Um, it feels great. feels very natural. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> very stoked to be in it. Well, that's awesome. I, we're going to talk about direct-to-consumer sales today. I, I think with this being, this will be our last CG show uh, of 2019, last show of the decade. I think this is an interesting trend uh, to look at. You know, I think we started out earlier in the 2010s. You think about Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, these companies that really emerged. Uh, but the, the story that really got me interested in talking about this today was at last month, beginning of November, uh, we saw Shane Dawson and Jeffree Star, two major YouTube stars, launch their conspiracy makeup palette, and they literally broke the internet uh, when it launched, Abby. Are you familiar with these two influencers and their uh, products? Yeah, I mean, I follow the story a little bit. I think it's sort of interesting to show really the power of social media and the power of followers, the power of marketing, um, and really just the evolution of sort of brand development these days. Yeah, just so how easy it is to connect with your consumer. Kylie right. Jenner, we heard about that earlier this year. Um, it's just so easy to market when you have this YouTube channel and these people that just love you. Uh, and, you know, you can create this content, sponsored content almost, uh, for yourself to create this brand. Uh, but first off, before we kind of dive into the, this business of direct-to-consumer, let's kind of define our terms. When we're talking about direct-to-consumer marketing or a direct-to-consumer product, what do we really mean there? Yeah, for our context, we're really talking about direct-to-consumer companies are companies that manufacture and ship products directly to buyers. So um, they sort of remove that traditional store or middleman operation there. Um, So think anyone when you, you know, for example, you could order directly from Hershey's website or you could buy it in a grocery store. The direct-to-consumer channel would be the website. Right. And so you've seen more and more companies developing that as their key strategy. You think about right. Lululemon, you really have to go to a Lululemon store to get that product. Uh, really changed how retail has been operated. Uh, do we have any kind of facts or figures about kind of how big uh, this market is and how it's developed over the past decade or so? Yeah. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau, e-commerce sales in this most previous quarter of 2019 increased about 16.9% over last year and accounted for about 11.2% of all sales. So, um, And then within that e-commerce is really that direct-to-consumer uh, portion. And it's the estimate that I saw was about 40% of all um, U.S. manufacturers have a direct-to-consumer channel. So um, a growing portion within the growing part of retail, right? And and it's the portion of retail that is really experiencing growth. While we hear you know terms like the retail apocalypse, those sorts of things thrown around, exactly. Macy's, these big department store chains that JC are stri- <laughs> JC Penney's is another one, right? Which we may talk about that um, a little bit later. Uh, Nike has been one example of a company that's had huge success in this direct-to-consumer channel. You can look at 2010, $2.5 billion uh, in revenue in that channel. Now, uh, this year, they're expected to be over $12 billion. So you're looking at, what's that, close to a 6x um, over right. the course of a decade, really you know, squeezing out um, those that middleman. And um, you know, as e-commerce has grown, direct-to-consumer marketing uh, has really grown. In 2019, I saw that DTC ad spend was up 50% uh, year over year. So it really, uh, this trend is really starting to grow significantly. And I guess I want to talk about why 
why is this happening? I, there's been demographic trends that, that have shifted, obviously, uh, social media. But w- what do you think has really driven the growth in this, this channel going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a variety of factors. But historically, if you look at um, American culture for economic reasons, for societal reasons, for cultural reasons, we've always sort of been a retail um, consumerist culture. So by in 2018, the U.S. had about 23 and a half square feet of retail space per capita. So comparatively, um, Canada was the second largest at 16.8, Australia at 11.2, the U.K. was at 4.6. So we've always had Um, a plethora of retail space, but I think the tides are sort of changing now. So um, we're expecting about 12,000 retail locations to close in 2019. So um, the the problem with traditional retail is that you had a lot of producers fighting over prime shelf space, and it was either you were on the prime shelf or you were really not, um, not bought, right? And so that was always a struggle. And I think, you know, as people have shifted more to buying online, it's easier to target customers online. And so those ads are a lot more effective. They're a lot more, um, they're a lot cheaper to place. And they're, you know, so you're able to drive sales a lot more efficiently. And so rather than using these traditional retail stores where people used to go in and sort of browse and buy via foot traffic, you have people searching directly for exactly what they want. And so when someone searches, you know, Nike sneaker, blah, 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 it's a lot easier for Nike to immediately serve that ad themselves rather than relying on, say, an Amazon or a Nordstrom or someone else to place that product in front of them. So I think it's just been a a shift as people continue to shop more online and continue to go for convenience over, um, you know, a physical location. Yeah, I think you mentioned Nike and Amazon. I think that's an apt example. Now, just because earlier this year, we saw Nike announce that they're going to remove their products from Amazon to kind of try to control their own brand in a more significant way. You can almost look at at retail, uh, you know, online retail as, you know, these this first decade or so has been a few big players aggregating the brands, you know, Amazon, eBay and those. And today we're seeing that kind of disaggregate, uh, you know, with Nike and others controlling their brand uh, direct to consumer. Right. Um, How much do you think I guess uh, our generation's, you know, 20s, early 30s uh, consumption habits is maybe driving this change, a, a concern about more kind of conscious consumerism, those sorts of things. You think that's been an important trend for DTC? I think one of the things that's really pushing this direction is, um, I mean, you've had a plethora of venture capital, right? So what's, you know, sort of having a big scale works when you're trying to launch a lot of products at a cost effective way. Um, we've sort of seen the pendulum swing to the other side with lots of venture capital. It has given a lot of companies the ability to really focus on niche markets and be um, maybe a little bit less effective in scale and more effective within a small, small segment. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think the pendulum is shifting. I don't know that it'll stay this way forever. And I think, interestingly enough, you've seen a lot of these um, direct-to-consumer brands, I would almost call it in like sort of a second wave, right? So previously, you know, you had Allbirds, which was only online. And now they have these smaller pop-up shops or even a couple of physical locations. I know Warby Parker is very similar. Um, so you're seeing sort of 
a push again into the physical retail from direct to consumer. And I think a lot of that is fueled by venture capital and just consumer habits. Yeah, I guess once you get that physical location, Apple is probably the first example of that, of yes. a, a company that really controlled its brand, went into physical retail, and you know the opportunities it's created for them. Everybody talked the jokes about you know the line at the Apple store to get my phone right, fixed, right. and it's because your product has really become that popular. You have a presence right. in all these towns, and that's really starting to happen right. for, for these DTC brands. Uh, you know, To your point about the niches that these brands play in, uh, a lot of brands we've seen, cosmetics, obviously, right. beauty, uh, Jessica Alba's Honest Company in the mm -hmm. uh, kind of cleaning space, uh, Razors, Harry's, and Dollar Shave Club. Why do you think these particular niches have seen success early in the direct-to-consumer commerce space? What is special about those that, what, that they've had success? Yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at industries that have historically sort of not met consumer expectations, right? So I think one of the biggest examples of direct-to-consumer businesses are those mattress companies. So just mm -hmm. offhand, you can think of Purple, Casper, Helix, Lisa. I mean, I know there's a million others. Um, buying a mattress has historically been, A, a very um, unattractive business to be in, right? Like you have to keep a lot of warehouses to store a lot of large items. People make this purchase, you know, once every 10 or 20 years. Um, you don't typically see repeat customers. As a consumer, there's a lot of options. They're not sort of... Um, ubiquitous across stores. There's no real brand name. So you've had a lot of challenges, right? And so I think places where you've seen sort of consumer dissatisfaction is where you've seen these niches be able to really come in and solve it at a way that would have previously been sort of unaffordable at the scale that they're doing. And so mattresses is a good example of that one. I think, you know, you mentioned personal care. So Harry's, Dollar Shave Club, Flamingo, Billy, Honest Company, uh, Glossier. I think, um, a lot of that is, has to do with transparency and uh, pushing for more clarity around honest ingredients or honest, um, you know, sort of that wellness trend of people caring a little bit more. And you get a lot more clarity from an individual brand than you would, say, like a Target. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's general consumer dissatisfaction in these sort of stagnant industries where you've seen a lot of the disruption. Yeah, I think one common trend you see among all of those products is that the utility is very simple, right? The utility of a right. bed, it's just a cushion that I lay down on. <laughs> the utility of a razor, it's got to it's got to be sharp and, and you know, cut, you know, cut cut the hair like I need. Even even if you look at, at makeup, right? Uh, the pigmentation and those sorts of things are important, but there's not a huge difference when you really lay the products down next to each other um, and the substances that, substances that go into them. So when you have you know, the razor and blade model, traditionally something right, that was right. very favorable to business and unfavorable to the consumer, there's an opportunity to, to build a brand and you, know, you have, a, you have a, a value proposition that's very easy to communicate right. um, to the consumer. One other trend on, on DTC retail, I guess, uh, as we've seen more pushes from from companies to to go direct to consumer. There's been a response by retailers themselves pushing into more private label, going direct to consumer uh, with their own uh, uh, consumption. I think we've I had a stat on this. Let's see. Yeah, so a 2019 uh, PLMA survey found that two thirds of respondents agreed that the store brands that they have bought are just as good or not better than the national brands, uh, national versions of those same brands. More than 40% said they buy store brands frequently or always, and 25% more are buying more store brands than they did five years ago. I think that goes to the same trend that I mentioned. These core utilities uh, of these brands are pretty easy to communicate, um, and then that that price, price utility. So how, how do you think uh, private label interacts with direct-to-consumer uh, and kind of consumer habits and, and how retail is changing going forward? I mean, I always consider the private label to be sort of maybe the um, standard 
I would say. So um, maybe your benchmark is that. And so to be an effective direct-to-consumer company, you need to compete somehow effectively. So you either need to have a better product or it needs to be cheaper. Likely, it's probably not going to be cheaper just because of the economics of those businesses. So you really have to be a little bit better. And better can just be you know, more appealing advertising. You've jumped this fan base where people just weirdly very much like you, right? So, like, I think Harry's Shave Club is a perfect example of that. People who use that love that. But fundamentally, it's just a razor, right? And so um, I think if I were a consumer goods company at this point, I would be very nervous about these direct-to-consumer companies that are continuing to upset what you had previously taken as sort of um, given revenue, yeah, I know. I think uh, the the companies that come to mind immediately they are kind of Unilever, Procter yep. and Gamble. Uh, you know, described earlier uh, how traditionally retail was all about your ability to dominate shelf space. Who can be at eye level? How can I get in the most number of stores possible? And when you know the store is really, do I have internet access? Uh, right. You know, shelf space becomes less and less relevant, uh, and price becomes harder. Right, like online. All prices are right at your fingertips. You're not necessarily having the struggle of having to visit multiple stores to compare prices. You know, so either you need to have something that people are willing to pay extra for, or you need to be the cheapest. Right? Yeah, yeah. The ability to compare prices is tougher because you don't see the two brands right next to each other. Mindshare becomes so important, right? If I think I need to get a mattress and I think Casper, and I see the Casper mattress right there, I don't see that the purple <laughs> mattress is fifty dollars cheaper. Um, so I think it creates. Uh, Difficulties in the sense of, you know, it's hard to charge a premium price, uh, but once you develop your brand, you know, some people may trust you so much that you can kind of command that premium um, in and of itself. I, I do think it's it's tough. Uh, it's just, I, I would not want to be running Procter & Gamble or Unilever today. It's just a very difficult environment to be Completely. going into. Uh, you know, your, your retail partners that are really key to your business are pushing into private label, which is taking share from you. And then on the, you know, more conscious consumerism branded side, you know, the DTC folks are chipping away at your business. So it's really yeah. tough. Uh, you know, for growth. Here's a question I have, too, on, on DTC. It makes me think a little bit about kind of craft beer, that once these craft beers get too big, they're kind of not cool anymore. Do you think that same aspect may come true in DTC a little bit, that as these brands get big enough, that kind of cachet of its, you know, this under-the-radar brand goes away? Do you think that, that success can al almost be uh, hurt these companies? I think it's a good question, and I think part of I mean, you have to look at why people are going to them, right? And so um, if it's a push for transparency, like in cosmetics, I wouldn't think – I would think the ceiling is um, higher than something where um, – I can't think of a great example offhand. But something where, you know, maybe it's just about, you know, the new trendy thing or, like, the new function. I think, you know, there is a habit to be formed, particularly with makeup. Like as someone who wears makeup every day, I would say, like, it's very painful to try and change that and you have to get used to things and whatever. So there is a barrier, which actually is even worse for these direct – or these, um, you know, stagnant Unilevers and your, you know – Johnson and Johnson, you know, that's painful when people break habit to try something new. Fundamentally, your product is horribly flawed, right? There has to be something terrible. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> who switches detergent, right? I mean, why do you like I use, right, I use right. gain because my parents used gain and I don't know why <laughs> I reach for that one, but it's the one that's familiar to me. Um, the last thing I want to talk about when it comes to, to DTC, we talked about folks like Warby Parker and folks uh, that are forming their own retail. What we haven't talked about or touched on at least a little bit is uh, some DTC companies 
forming relationships with more traditional retail partners to to move to market. The one the example that comes to mind for me is Kylie Jenner making the deal with Ulta to get into stores. Um, what are the advantages of that for for a DTC company, and and how do you see those playing out over time? Those relationships. Yeah, I mean the advantage is obviously as a direct to consumer company, if you um, are entering one of these stores, you're getting scale immediately, right? So. Um, there are probably lots of people who are unaware of Kylie Jenner's makeup brand before it was in Ulta, and now they're browsing by it, they see it, they're intrigued, they try it, et cetera, et cetera. And for Ulta, you know, they get to attract all of Kylie's fan bases who wants to come get these new products. So it's kind of a win-win for both. I would say um, the other thing that I think as a direct-to-consumer brand, when you enter an existing retail channel, you're sort of, I think the name of the game is always going to be credibility. So when someone... Once you enter one of those channels, it's sort of like a vetting process, right? So you automatically get um, a little bit more credibility by being aligned with an Ulta or a Target or, you know, enter your big big box name here. And I think, you know, direct-to-consumer was made possible really by these ubiquitous secure payment platforms. So think PayPal or Stripe. But um, entering a physical space sort of gives an increased level of credibility. So I think it's a win-win to some degree for both. Right. I think you look at Target, you know, once I started seeing Harry's right next to Gillette, that really cemented right. that this right. brand is real. It's not just one that I, I see on the commercials anymore. Um, so I, there's pros and cons there. You know, I mentioned earlier, being able to see a product right next to its competitor can, you know, tell you, you know, give you a price signal that you might not right. get otherwise. Um, but it's, it's a trend that I think we'll see continue to develop, particularly for these brands that, you know, it's difficult, you know, if you're Kylie Jenner to have one store that's just your makeup brand, but you can easily, you know, push into Ulta or that sort of thing. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about is, you know, for investors that are interested in this direct-to-consumer trend, I've seen it developing over time, becoming a more and more significant part of our purchasing habits. What do you think are the most, or the ways that you'd be most excited to invest in uh, the direct-to-consumer trend? I think maybe the most insulated would be the advertisers. So regardless of whatever platform people are using, those ads have to be placed in front of the right people. So um, your big advertisers obviously are Google, the Trade Desk, um, Facebook, even Pinterest I would put in that category. People who really help serve ads to the right clients would be my first choice of investing in this trend. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. The, the example that I think about about direct to consumer and these these platforms that just you know blows my mind at what's capable of being accomplished with them. And it's it's a negative example, but I think it, it it's one that a lot of people will be familiar with is is uh, uh, the Fire Festival, mm-hmm. right? The Fire Festival. You built this this brand that nobody had ever heard of by you know a coordinated series of, of Instagram posts, which built up this massive amount of hype. Uh, which you know ended up being multiple documentaries about it, but it just shows the power um, of these brands. When you look at a company like Shopify, how does that, that fit into the, the direct-to-consumer trend? Obviously, I think they just had 12% uh, of Black Friday revenue. How big is the opportunity for a company like that in this space? I would say huge. You know, Shopify can power a lot of small businesses. It gives um, a lot of assistance in terms of back-end, uh, you know, business management tools to a lot of small merchants. So Shopify, I would even say Amazon, um, Etsy, I would put in that category. Any sort of platform that helps with logistics is going to help direct-to-consumer brands. Okay. Going away, Abby, do you have any direct-to-consumer brands that you use that you would recommend to our listeners? Good question. I... I've shopped on Revolve before, and they are a recent IPO. Um, and the reason I would consider them direct-to-consumer, not only are they just an e-commerce website, but they design clothing based on 
um, sort of Instagram trends and likes. So very much using data to sort of design. And I, it's a really interesting business. And as a consumer, I use it all the time. Cool. I think the one the one for me that uh, I think is interesting, I don't know if it's necessarily direct-to-consumer. Would you call Poshmark direct-to-consumer? Yeah, that's a pa- platform company. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Poshmark is a, it's in the resale industry. It's kind of basically like a giant online uh, garage garage store, basically, where you yeah. can sell sell your, I guess, I think they describe them as your closet, mm-hmm. your, your, your used clothes you can sell online. And I, I think the resale industry... Uh, is going to be massive going forward. We talk about how uh, there's concerns among among millennials about sustainable consumption, and when you're you know using resale, uh, that's one way to avoid that. Some estimates uh, say that the industry could be as big as 64 billion dollars a year by 2028. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting one. I don't know if it will come public. I think they pushed back uh, their IPO date, but that will be one that I'll be interested to see the numbers on. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of activity within the market in that space. So we had the Real Real go public recently. Poshmark was slated for the end of 2019, has been pushed to 2020 at some point. Um, but lots of players there. Super interesting space. Yeah. Well, Abby, thank you for coming on Industry Focus. I hope we can get you on again more often <laughs> than, uh, than than the last time you've been on. Yeah. Hope to see you before the next five years. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, as always, people on the program and companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Abby Mallon, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.